Welcome back to the Equity Matters Podcast. This is your host, Addis JV3. And for those of you that don't know, I am a social worker. I've been a social worker since 2012. I graduated from Michigan State University School of Social Work with a focus in organizational community practice because I was interested in systems. I was interested in policies and I was interested in how those policies impact those systems. There are many different ways that we can talk about social work, so many different ways that we can pick it apart because there's so many different things that we can do. When I describe myself for presentations, I mentioned that I am a facilitator. I am a practitioner. I am a researcher. I'm a policy analyst. All of these things came from the fact that I am a social worker. But when I talk about social work, I often frame it in a macro lens. And so it's important that we also hear from the perspective of people who do work at clinical level and folks who interact with individuals. And so today I'm excited to host Reggie Jackson, a fellow black social worker who is doing quite a bit in the individual therapy space, but he also brings those same skills and assets to the macro space. Today's conversation is really about how you can use both sets of skills, regardless of what practice area you're in. Reggie, you want to introduce yourself to the folks listening today? Sure. My name is Reggie Jackson. I'm a clinical level therapist um, practicing in Lawrence, Kansas. Um, I also not only do just individual and couples work, but I also have I, I own a private practice and so we do um, domestic violence work for per- perpetrators of domestic violence and uh, we also have anger management programs which I'm sure we can get into as far as macro level the courts make us call it anger management I consider it a mood regulation class but uh, yeah thanks for having me on here I appreciate the opportunity Reggie, so glad to have you. The thing that I really want to kick this conversation off with is this idea that we often lose sight of equity at the micro level. And I know that's of no intention of our own, but we tend to delegate equity work to macro level practitioners. And so knowing that you're engaged in that micro space how does DEI show up in your work? How do you define it? And what's the role for a micro practitioner who's looking to do equity work? For sure, the one, a few things for the diversity is just making sure um, I have a, try to have a diverse staff and also uh, making sure that we let our communities or the folks we work with know that we're definitely LGBTQIA affirmative, obviously working with people of color. Um, there's actually, um, we have a great opportunity here in, in Lawrence because uh, Haskell University is here, the uh, college for native folks. So we, we get people from all over the country that come at school there. So honestly, for me, didn't get a lot of opportunities um, to interact with Native folks growing up. So that's been an area of growth for me. And then uh, 
not to get too far off the subject, but um, the equity is, you know, about a level playing field, not just everybody getting the same thing, but the folks, marginalized folks and people like that are getting the opportunities to have the same opportunities as white folks around here. And um, also like inclusion is the action step. I think diversity and equity, like those are things that can be dressed up um, and, and with inclusion it takes action and that's uh that's my favorite part is the inclusion part is are people doing what they said they're gonna do instead of just dressing things up and making it look like they care sure sure for folks who are not you know from kansas could you describe kind of what the environment looks like yeah yeah it's a it's a red state it's, it's a pretty conservative um, Lawrence actually is, um, in comparison with the rest of the state, is a pretty progressive town. Um, there's a lot of activism here. There's a nice, Caleb Stevens um, has a Black Lives Matter chapter here in town. And so he's really active. There's a lot of folks that get together to practice activism um, in, in that capacity here. So, but it's still... It's not not a lot of black therapists such as myself running around here, especially males. And um, but the cool thing is, Kansas City is about 35, 40 minutes away, which is a little, quite a bit more diverse um, than what we would consider the rest of of Kansas. Gotcha. So you know, thinking about a city, a smaller city where there may be fewer. Uh, people of color. What is it like mm -hmm. working with that particular, like a marginalized population? It's been it's been busy for me here lately. After the the movements really picked up, you know, sometimes I may feel I've had times where I've I've felt personally like maybe a white family has sent um, their their kid to this. Uh, big black dude to get straightened out and not understand what the therapeutic process really looks like or um, the same with couples doing things with them and um, wanting kind of like the Dr. Phil thing where I just tell someone how they should operate and that's not what real therapy looks like and so I have that on one end and then because people know that, um, you know, I'm a black therapist here in town, um, that I get lots of referrals from um, folks from like the Black Lives Matter community and um, a number of different um, black indigenous and people of color little pockets in the area. I haven't been out protesting. I think we all have different roles to play during this movement as it continues to increase. And so one thing I've done is kind of like pro bono clients. I've only see black folks right now pro bono or really kind of trying to support the movement in that way. People are managing seeing black men and women get killed by the police 
pretty much every other week. It, I think, um, is is a almost fair statement to make. So when you have instances like that, and you have a community, um, albeit maybe a smaller community, how do we address that shared trauma? Um, one thing I um, encourage is some group discussions or town hall meetings or forums. I did participate like probably a month ago. I did a um, forum with like the sheriff of Douglas County, which Lawrence is in, um, the chief of police, a few other community leaders, Anthony Lewis, who is the school superintendent here in Lawrence. So we had a conversation about uh, the the way that uh, historically and systematically, I mean, this is a slight overgeneralization, but not really how the police and um, Black folks have interacted traditionally and how we can kind of improve those interactions or those, I don't even want to say comfort level. We need to get us in the same room, have conversations to sort through what we are seeing from our end and not just have this uh, a organization who is oppressing other folks that don't look like them most of the time, you know? How do we move from like uncomfortable conversations into meaningful dialogue? Because that's ultimately the goal that we want to get at is we want to get to solutions, but you do have to get over a few hurdles first. So take us to the room, right? Where the conversations take place. What does that look like? What is that experience? You want to acknowledge the uncomfortableness of talking about racism, first of all. People want to dance around that topic as oft some people. I don't want to categorize everybody, but people don't want to talk about racism. People don't want to talk about, especially, I would say, some white people don't want to hear about how they practice uh, systemic racism or practice white supremacy on a daily basis. And some of it they may not even know, you know, and they don't want to consider microaggressions and the impact of what some of us are dealing with and, you know, have to think about on a daily basis. So I think that's the first step is are you willing to hear our experience in this in this community? The second thing is for uh, at least the acknowledgement that um, our experiences are valid. What we're not making things up. It's super frustrating when I have conversations with white colleagues or just white folks or sit in these rooms and have these conversations where someone's trying to argue or come up with reasons why this my story isn't valid you know like well what about this i actually went to private school for high school and you know there's maybe 15 black kids out of 400 students so like the the funny thing is like the arguments I've heard haven't changed since the nineties, you know, like people are still trying to use the same white folks are still trying to use the same strategies to explain their way out of 
racism existing and white supremacy existing. And so it is important in those tough conversations that, that we need white people saying, all right, it makes sense that because you don't have to worry about talking to your kids about how to handle a police stop, that that's a privilege that white folks have that maybe black folks don't have, you know? And, and again, when I'm having this conversation, black folks aren't monolithic. Not everybody thinks like I think. So this is coming from my own perspective and that doesn't uh, account for every black person out there. I always like to say that, but, um, um, so yeah, having that opportunity for people to listen and validate the black experience and the impact of white supremacy in these communities and in this country um, from all three levels, macro level, meso level, and the micro level. And then if people are able to acknowledge that, then we can start having conversations about what inclusion and equity looks like, you know? So I've got a, a variety of listeners and I think many, I would say the majority are definitely graduate students. And okay. I'm really curious if you could give some tips on how to press against that resistance. You know, as a professional, you understand you've been trained. There's certain things that you have to do. Like when a person says, well, racism isn't real. How do you mm -hmm. respond to that? So you're talking like if in a, in a, in a group group setting or in like an individual therapy set, setting? Are you, let's, are give, you, let's give both because I, I imagine there's differences, be, but we're trying to get to the same goal of educating yeah. and ensuring it's a safe space. I, th I think in a one-on-one -on -one interaction, again, trying to educate the person and pointing the person in the right direction of educating themselves about really what white supremacy and systemic oppression looks like. Not what it looks like, but how it has impacted generation after generation after generation of not just black people and, and from a negative perspective in a lot of ways, but how it's benefited white folks in a lot of different ways. That there's these policies in place like redlining, situations within the justice system where there's not equity in the way people's sentences are handed down or how things are handled in the judicial system. And so, you know, one thing we do have to consider and I have to consider like one-on-one -on -one with someone is if you are not willing to ex at least explore these things, then I don't know if, to be honest, if that's the type of conversation that I'm, I'm willing to have with someone. If someone asks for something and then all the information you give them, they're like, yeah, I don't believe that. I don't believe that. Then you do have to consider if it's worth your emotional energy to continue to have those conversations. I can't force anyone to believe that racism really exists or that systemic pro oppression or white supremacy that any of those things exist you know like we don't get to control other people's thoughts and feelings and so 
one-on-one, that's something we do have to consider. And I, and I do have some colleagues that are, they don't even feel like we should have to educate white people on it. Like if you, and to some degree, I, I understand the principles behind that, but I also wanna feel like if someone asks me a question, I can give them a little feedback on my perspective and then point them towards a book like White Fragility or How to Be an Anti-Racist or whatever it might be. Um, but it's all about us getting our own, doing our own work, you know, and whatever perspective or discipline we want to learn more about or educate ourselves on. I, I would say in um, big group settings, something that folks need to be ready to do is deal with some emotional discomfort. If they really want to discuss and hear how they may be practicing white supremacy unbeknownst to them or what racism looks at like from a covert perspective that they aren't really paying attention to that uh, we need to articulate to them. So hopefully they will understand it. But as that happens, you know, there's that white, that, that white fragility and that pushback that people will give us sometimes because nobody, I don't think anyone wants to be called a racist. And I think that people have to understand that racism happens on a, on a spectrum and people are doing things that are um, anti-black and they don't even, some of them aren't aware. Of course, there's people who are explicitly racist, but there's, there's other folks who are not willing to explore the parts of themselves where they are watching a show and they don't get that a lot of times in television and entertainment, white people are controlling these these corporations or these entertainment companies and they're putting out there what they think everybody's gonna be drawn to so that they can make money. And so if having a brother with big gold chains and gold teeth rapping and being um, charismatic and, and funny and good looking on a television show, if that makes money, they're gonna keep producing that type of content. And then if, what I would say for an example, if white people are watching that person and think, oh, that's how black people are, or that's how black people wanna be perceived, and then they bring that energy into their workplaces, around other folks, their classrooms, then um, they, we need to educate them on that and help them understand that. And uh, that's a lot of layers for folks who may not wanna sit back and think that deeply about how deep this racism thing runs in our, in our country. This really leads me to think about how in many ways the black experience has been turned into a commodity, but I'll save that for another day for another podcast. But you bring up the fact that 
you don't only have to be informed for your clients. You also have to be informed for your colleagues. And knowing your role as someone who owns a private practice, to what extent are you responsible for that degree of education for making sure that your staff knows what's acceptable and what's not? That's a, that's a great question. Just because of the type of dude I am, I'm, I will provide some information. I'm not gonna be closed off to just saying to someone, oh, you, you, you go check out this book or you need to watch this movie or understand this. I'm also not gonna do all the work for them, but I will provide them some, some insight about my work or their interactions with those folks and then point them in the direction of a book or something that I think they might need to understand. But that does happen quite a bit, whereas you're seen as the expert on all black folks as a black person. Fortunately enough, I'm blessed to have my own practice now, so I don't have to deal with that as much because I can put people in place around me who I want to be working with as far as colleagues and, and professional folks. But it is something that that we, I don't know, just like you got to study, we all had to study cultural competence or some form of that in grad school. I also think it's our point. Our is It's important as a fellow social worker that we are making sure folks get the best services that they can. And so I would feel, in a way, I see it as selfishness if I'm like, you need to go do your own work while I know this, this client's not getting the help they need because this person hasn't taken the steps to get educated on, on this information, you know? And, and if we could even have a conversation about ethics and the ethical impacts of that. But I have to do my own work and I expect other, other folks to be doing that as well, you know? And even though I'm not in a clinical setting, I still hold the same expectations for my colleagues and my peers that they will do the work. Because we all know, we talk about implicit bias, we talk about microaggressions, but at some point we're just gonna have to call it what it is. It's, it's racism. And I don't want to have to worry about if the person next to me chose to read that chapter of the book that says this is how you function in society, knowing that there's a strong chance that they didn't. I, I actually used to uh, teach in the MSW program here at KU. And um, something I used to tell my students is if someone calls you and they're suicidal, you got to be creative in your your strategies and your work you can't go refer to a book in that moment like you you either need to call someone who you feel like can can help you support that person or you need to be creative in your thinking and and use some of these skills that you've been taught to support that person and so it's um, social works, a lot of the times, is not something where you're going to be able to do everything by the book, you know? And so not, not like, like, you know, 
therapeutic modalities and stuff where they're like, you'll say this, then your client will say this, and then they'll say this, and then you counter with this. That's not normally what, at least what therapy looks like, you know? And so it's definitely something to consider. You know, I wish situations and scenarios were really like that because I might have found myself sticking around child welfare a little bit longer as opposed to getting cussed out every other visit, which made me want to leave even sooner. <laughs> hey, I was also going to say, JB, that uh, that um, one time thinking back on like doing your own work um, a few years back, I had a client who was visually impaired and I had never worked with someone who was visually impaired. And so going back to doing your own work, I had to go read and figure out best practices for working with that person. You know, there was no one who I could just go talk to and say like, hey, what's the best way to work with this person? You know, like we all are going to come up against things, hopefully, where we got to learn some more and learn some different strategies, you know. And I'm glad you mentioned that because I think in many cases we get comfortable with our credentials, right? Like we feel like uh -huh. because I am a licensed social worker or because I am an MSW, whatever the letters are behind your name, we neglect the fact that they're still learning to do. I know where my shortcomings are. Like I'm still trying to become more fluent in gender identity and sexual mm -hmm. orientation and how those things are not the same. And yeah, I'm going to make mistakes along the way. And I own that. And I encourage people around me to correct me when I'm wrong. But I think in many cases, we put up this wall around the opportunity to learn. And it makes it difficult for us as providers. Yeah, I, I would say for sure, you were saying that um, a lot of your listeners are, are um, working towards their, their licensing and, and in grad school and things like that don't be afraid to ask questions in class um, or to your clinical supervisor to people who you consider mentors so many people are worried about looking dumb that i should say incompetent that's a better strengths-based word that they're missing out on so many learning opportunities and i just never been that person that if i have a question i'm going to ask you I realized later on in my uh, professional career, that's, that's like a skill. Not, like not everybody is comfortable doing that and putting themselves out there, but I would really encourage folks to really do that. We've covered a lot today as far as managing clients, managing colleagues, and really just managing the stress that comes with being a black social worker. So Reggie, I'm particularly interested in what does self-care look like for you? I really, when things are going well, I'm managing my um, weekends well. And what, what I mean by that is kind of making myself give work a break. Um, I've had my private practice for six years now. And so um, anyone who's, in that private practice space it it does take a lot of work there's a lot of ups and downs and um so being able to give your myself a day or two of where i'm not totally immersed in what my next move is or what my next play is going to be 
um, or what I need to get done. That's important. I do like hitting the gym and I, I, I may have too many, too many hobbies, but um, I, I do like to hit the gym. Um, and then I got, I got a couple other hobbies that I enjoy doing. And then family time, I got my, I have a nine-year-old and a two-year-old. And so um, just focusing on them when we have those, those times to do that um, are, is really important and kind of rejuvenating for me. Having a two-year-old can be quite the, uh, quite the work, but um, the dude is hilarious, so <laughs> it, it all works out. Well, Reggie, you know, I like to uh, always plug my people in. So is there a place that people can follow you, keep up with you? I know that you've got a booming Facebook community. You want to speak to any of those platforms where people can connect with you? Yeah, yeah. I'm on uh, Instagram. Um, I'm at Satori Counseling. Satori is S-A-T-O-R-I. I have a Facebook group called Therapy is Dope. Um, it's pretty cool. We just do, it's more, there's no, um, it's, it's all what we consider psychoeducational, like topographic stuff, you know, we're not digging too deep. Um, I usually do like an affirmation or something each morning and have, we have conversations. So it's pretty cool. Just want to destigmatize mental health, um, and let people know that therapists are normal people just like everyone else um and then i have uh so also satori counseling on facebook and then my website is satoricounseling.com um so those are my main social media outlets that that i'm you i try to have a twitter space but i don't really get into it ig is my main that's what i really like we are the exact opposite there. Like I'm all over Twitter. I get on Instagram. <laughs> really? I look crazy. I, we're talking about uh, the hip hop social worker, man. And yeah, I see he's on Twitter quite a bit and I try to hang and I'm just like, nah, I'm just go back over to my IG thing, man, and just do my thing over here. Hey, Reggie, it's been a, a blessing getting to know you a little bit better and the work that you're doing. Really appreciate you taking the time, man. Yeah, thank you, man. I uh, appreciate the opportunity. Thanks for reaching out and uh, let me know if you ever want to do this again. I got, um, there sounds like there's some other conversations we could have that would be intriguing as well. So just let me know. Oh, definitely. And, you know, keep your head up. Black Social Workers Matter. For sure. For sure. You do the same. And as always, I'd like to take a moment to thank the subscribers and the listeners out there. I mean, without you, None of this would be possible. Appreciative of all the folks out there who have been sharing the word, sharing the podcast, sharing the content online. If you're not following us, please do. We are Equity Matters Podcast on Instagram. I say it every time we have a new episode, but there's always new content up there looking for ways to create community, to educate and to keep people informed. And as demonstrated in the conversation with Reggie, I feel like there are many, many opportunities for us as social workers to be engaged and live between the worlds, right? So it doesn't have to be just micro, just meso, just macro, but 
we have an opportunity to advance equity in all of those spaces. We all have a role to play. And I know my role. And I'm hoping that you, as you're listening, you see where you fit in in that as well. And so until next time, continue to do what is right, even when it's difficult. And know that equity matters.